Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. Be seated. We saw yesterday a clear example in the New Testament of how Jesus Christ dealt with the demand for evidence from the Apostle Thomas in John chapter 20. Our Lord himself did not berate Thomas for asking for evidence. He admonished him only for not believing based on the eyewitness testimony of those who had actually seen the risen Christ. But then he gave Thomas direct, legally admissible, non-hearsay evidence on which the strongest confession of the deity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is given. My Lord and my God. But what about the apostles themselves after the ascension of Christ? How did they deal with demands for evidence? especially challenges from people operating outside of the context of the Old Testament and the synagogue. Didn't they, in fact, just preach at people, not reason with them and give them evidence? We are told in Acts 17, the early part of this chapter, that their message had turned the Roman world upside down. But was it by engagement with culture or standing outside culture and preaching at it? Did they meet the objections to Christianity by telling people, pray about it, and you'll see that it's true in your heart? Are the apostles like the current tele-evangelists who went over people by smiling a lot and telling people to try Jesus as your life coach who can give you the best tips on self-improvement and see what he does for your family life and business success? Well, today's text, Acts 17, answers the question of how the first Christians dealt with secularism, the non-churched, the kind you run into all the time in your business, in the assembly line, in a college town, in your legal practice. More specifically, Acts 17 describes the Apostle Paul's encounter with a group of intellectuals, academics, philosophers, at the center of intellectual activity of the ancient world, Athens, Greece. A brief word about Athens. If Rome gave us law, roads, and bridges, Athens gave us Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. Athens was the Harvard of the ancient world. By the first century, its main claim to fame was still as a center of philosophical inquiry and the acquisition of knowledge. Paul ends up being escorted from the marketplace up to the ascended heights of the Areopagus in what is known as Mars Hill to encounter philosophers, intellectual heavyweights who were fascinated, the text says in verse 21, with anything new and innovative. This was kind of like the Silicon Valley of the philosophical world. Well, Mars Hill is where the philosophers hung out to debate the latest ideas. And it's the equivalent of where final justice was meted out in Athenian society. So Mars Hill is like having Harvard and the Supreme Court rolled into one place. That's the Athens of Acts 17. In fact, it's been argued the entire future of Christianity 
rested on what Paul did at Athens in Acts 17. Would Christianity engage the culture with common ground arguments and present the evidence for Jesus Christ as evidence that could be checked out in the area of real history, real fact, without presupposing a whole set of assumptions? Or would Paul require his listeners first to accept, for example, the accuracy of the Old Testament as the Word of God before presenting the case for Christianity? The entire future of Christianity is at stake in Acts 17. We see three things from the text. First, Paul went to all strata of society. Second, Paul used common ground arguments. And third, Paul made Christ and Him crucified the center of His message, not moral reform or social justice. First, Paul went to all strata of society. Paul went not only to his homeboys, the native Hebrews in the synagogue where the Old Testament was accepted, but he went to the In-N-Out Burger salesman, the Shish Kebab salesman in the marketplace in Athens, the text says, and also to the professor of philosophy, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were at Mars Hill. Now, his rabbinic training was under the top Jewish lawyer of the day, Camillo, we know from Acts 22. Paul said he sat at Camillo's feet. Clearly, Camillo prepared him for work in the synagogue. That was the common ground of the Old Testament. It's where Paul goes repeatedly in the book of Acts. That was the seedbed for presenting Jesus as the center of the Old Testament. But Paul's formal training did very little to prepare him to work with the shish kebab salesman in the Athenian Agora. That was a whole different set of practical questions that Paul would have to deal with. Let alone being prepared by Gamaliel for sophisticated philosophical questions raised by Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. But Paul went to where unbelievers were because of his concern for the lost. He knew no intellectual or social barriers that narrowed his field. The gospel is to be preached to all creatures, rich, poor, liberal, conservative, educated, uneducated, wherever and to whomever he came in contact with. We should be mindful that Jesus' followers themselves were the gamut of society, from a wealthy tax accountant in Matthew to a prostitute. Here in Acts 17, we have the very, very best example of Paul's fundamental approach to unbelievers. It's found in 1 Corinthians 9.22. He desired to be all things to all men, that some may be saved. Paul went where the doors opened, from palaces to prisons and everything in between. All strata of society. Because that's where the gospel is. That's where the gospel is to be presented. And that's exactly what Jesus did in going to all strata of society. Second, Paul used common ground arguments. Paul does not position himself in Acts 17 outside the non-Christian's frame of reference and preach at him. Nor does he demand that the philosophers come to the synagogue for a good confirmation class or maybe catechism down at the synagogue. He instead develops common ground and reasons, the text says, with the Greeks on their turf. Question. 
how did Paul develop common ground with the Athenian academics? Answer, by careful study of their worldview. In verse 15, we see that Paul has been left in Athens after being run out of Berea. It's a common theme of Paul in the book of Acts. He gets run out of Berea for presenting the word of God in the synagogues. I think it's safe to say because he was presenting Jesus as the center of the Old Testament. In verse 16, we see that Paul then spends time in Athens observing the culture he was in, a city full of idols. We learn from the text that he observed those carefully and that he then went to the marketplace daily to reason with whoever was present. Paul was learning the unique Athenian objections to the gospel from the shish kebab salesman to the stoic philosopher. Those specialized intellectual and cultural objections that every culture develops, even Birmingham. Paul does this in Athens in the marketplace by what I would call random evangelism. Whoever is there, he talks to. Scripture, by the way, is full of examples of random evangelism, which is very frowned upon in many circles in Christianity. It's frowned upon by marketing bureaucrats in the church who think in terms of branding and sales and niche markets. Paul, however, used every societal opportunity to present Christ and Him crucified. The marketplace in Athens was where people gathered. It was the blogosphere of the first century. It was Starbucks. It was the place where people gathered to have conversation. And that's where Paul found himself. It's interesting to contrast Paul's apologetic concern with the understanding and his concern to deal with secular objections to the gospel with how many Christians deal with it today. Some would never be caught dead studying a secular culture's idols in the first place, preferring at best to preach at the Athenian intellectuals for being obvious moral reprobates. Have you ever met a philosopher who wasn't? Since we all know philosophy leads one to hell. Some would even say that reasoning with people is biblically unsupportable. Why? Because they're dead in their sins. They will fail to understand any fact that you present to them, say some. And some will say, bringing the gospel to philosophers is a complete waste of time. That's the most hardened group a society could ever present. Have you ever seen a philosopher walk down the aisle at a Billy Graham crusade? Paul, though, is going to develop common ground through his study and observation of his culture. This is not the Athens of the golden age of Greece, 4th, 5th century BC. That was the time of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. The study of philosophy, music, art, anatomy, poetics, literature, the golden age of Greece. It is not the golden age. But the Athens of philosophy, it still is. And at Athens, Paul was confronted, we find in verse 18, by Epicurean and Stoic philosophers at Mars Hill. Both schools of philosophy come from 4th century B.C. thinkers. The Epicureans were both cynical and self-indulgent by the time of Paul's attention at Athens. The Epicureans were the Sadducees among the Greeks, as they're called by Blaylock in his work. 
And our Lord himself didn't waste a lot of time with the Sadducees, we find from Matthew 22. But with the ethically astute and sensitive Stoics, it was a different story. And Paul directs his apologetical effort to those exact philosophers. They were at least willing to give him an audience. What did the Stoics believe? Well, they believed in the possibility of good within oneself. And that the universe was moving to completion. And they believed in a great life force, but not a personal God. They believed in real evil and a free will. They were pantheists, in fact, most akin today to a new ager. Stoic philosophy, therefore, was not exactly the 39 articles of the Anglican religion. Nor is it, in my own confession, one of the Lutheran confessions. Hardly. But Paul begins with common ground with these people. He begins with the fact that they at least are very religious, he says. They have a lot of different gods. He makes the point that he's intrigued by a statue they have created to an unknown god. Agnostos in the Greek. Or without knowledge in verse 23. It's the only place where this word is used in the Greek New Testament. Paul is saying to the Athenians in his address to them, to the philosophers, you seem to lack knowledge about this statue to an unknown god. You have statues to every god for every physical and other material need, seasonal need in your culture. And you have a thousand years of mythology to draw on. 500 years of philosophical speculation, and you've accomplished much in terms of math, music, science, historical writing, lyric poetry. You have it all, Athenians, save for one thing. You lack knowledge about the true God. So it sounds like maybe you don't have all the pieces put together yet. So I'm going to address what you don't have knowledge about and wisdom about and present to you a case for what you only are groping for. This is an apologetical tutorial. Paul begins where 500 years of Greek philosophical speculation has finally arrived at. Statues to unknown God. Well, Paul then uses common ground of the belief the Athenians had in creation and he talks about a creator God. First article of the creed kinds of things. Common ground. This is the kind of thing any Athenian philosopher would listen to. Aristotle's unmoved mover. The traditional proofs for the existence of God, many of them came from Aristotle, refined by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Paul goes right to that interest and works with them on the level of creation first. Because that's the common ground. Not too controversial yet, very few people lose their life arguing for the existence of God. I doubt you would lose your life in Athens arguing for the existence of God or losing your life in Birmingham arguing for the existence of God either. Still, the existence of God is a long way away from the death of Christ for the sin of the world. If Paul had ended at creation, no offense would have been taken, but no gospel would have been preached no Christ presented in his saving office. Have you noticed there's people that never get past criticizing a culture's idols? They think it's enough to criticize non-Christian philosophical positions. The gospel, though, 
is not true because every other position is false. Just because you spend a lot of time destroying non-Christian positions doesn't, by virtue of that, establish Christianity's truth claims. Some Christians, on the other hand, spend all their time on the offense, proving the case for what happened at the beginning of time or at the end of time. Those are two topics that were given minimal information in, in Scripture compared to the center of its message, which is about a very specific time. Let me get exceedingly specific about what happened 2,000 years ago on a hill about a 30-minute walk from the center of Jerusalem from 12 to 3 one Friday afternoon. That is the center of all of Scripture. But that message means the good news is not about making Athens more morally pure and socially just. Paul's not interested in making nicer Athenians, more polite Athenians. He's interested in seeing the dead in trespasses and sins become alive through believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for every sinner's justification. So Paul will not stop at God as creator. He does not preach just that God created the heavens and the earth, nor does he preach some kind of six-day creationism, threshold evolution, or anything else, nor does he mention what three-day weekend the Lord is going to return. Since our Lord didn't have that information on this earth, it's a good idea not to speculate. Well, what does he do? Paul uses familiar Greek philosophical sources to build his argument for creation and that man in his human wisdom is an utterly futile search for God. He mentions two poets and cites them. Poets mentioned are Stoic poets from the 4th and 3rd centuries, Cleanthes and Aretus, and particularly Cleanthes' Hymn to Zeus. Paul uses the phrase, as your own poets have said. In verse 27, he says, you're groping for God. The Greek word is the exact same word that Homer uses for the groping of the blind cyclops seeking entrance to his cave. Plato would have used the same work and Greek word to describe man's guesses at truth. The point is, the use of that word in verse 27 was tremendously significant to Paul's audience. And it showed that Paul understood the objections of the Athenians and their vocabulary. He's a wide reader. It's safe to say Paul didn't study the hymn to Zeus under Gamaliel in rabbinic school. Paul's apologetical zeal and concern for the lost led him to that source. And he doesn't water down his presentation of sin, repentance, and judgment. Without explaining what the disease is, the cure makes no sense. Paul presents the Evangelion, the good news, but only after he presents the bad news in this presentation in Acts 17. The bad news, we're all bound in sin, destined for judgment and wrath of God. The problem with all religions in the world, when reduced, is that they don't understand the seriousness of sin. What it means and what it does. And therefore, every remedy proposed by every non-Christian and other religion in the world can never adequately provide a remedy. Paul develops common ground through Greek sources, and yet he gets to sin and the coming judgment. And a word to all of us, when the law disappears in any presentation to people outside of the church, the gospel appears unnecessary and stupid. 
Christianity becomes to unbelievers the sad story of how a 30-year-old Jewish carpenter got himself killed, and that's it. Third and finally, Paul made Christ crucified and risen for sinners, not moral reform, the center of his message. Here we get to the culmination of the passage. We learn not just that he went to others on their turf, gave common ground arguments, presented the case for sin and judgment, but he also presents Christ and him crucified as the only sufficient solution to man's dilemma. Instead of allowing his talk to devolve into an attack on Athenian reprobates, their moral problems in Athenian culture. He's not afraid to address sin, but he doesn't make morality an improvement seminar for the Athenians. Romans 1-3 to kind of eliminates that as a good idea anyway. Paul does not allow a culture war over moralism to control the discussion. He goes to the cross where all are saved. Paul goes right to the cross and the resurrection is the best external evidence that God was in fact in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He doesn't leave the discussion in safe domains of argument about the existence of God as so many Christians do today. And the cross and the resurrection are presented as something Athenians don't need to take his word for. They can examine the evidence themselves. That evidence that is good enough to convince a legion of trial lawyers as to its facticity. The resurrection is the center of the Christian faith and all rises or falls on its veracity. And the response to Paul in in, uh, Acts 17 is the same response that we see today. In Acts 17 verses 31 it says, And because, Paul says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, others said, We'll hear you again. And verse 34 said, Some believed and joined. That's the same message that's presented today. Some believed and joined. In fact, the scripture says, Among them was Dionysius the Areopagite, a philosopher, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And there's very strong church tradition that Dionysius the Areopagite was the first bishop of Athens. Can you imagine the impact? Paul didn't have thousands coming down the sawdust trail at Athens, but he had Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris and others with them. The impact they had from the presentation of Christ crucified to Athenian culture was incalculable. The same message given at Athens today when presented is the same story that saves today. The story of the spotless Lamb of God given for the sins of the world, for your sin, for my sin. Crucified, dead and buried for us, in our place, judged in our place, and risen again on the third day in a real time-space resurrection. He's purchased our release by his own blood and ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. The Greeks have given us much, including classical education. Human wisdom can still be given to common grace by virtue of common grace and God's general blessings can accomplish much, including acts of social justice, vindication of human rights, stopping a genocide, curing a cancer, cleaning of the environment, and the alleviation of poverty. The only thing it can't solve is being made right with God. That God himself does through the gift of his son for the sins of the world. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think through our great high priest Jesus who suffered in our stead and took our punishment on Calvary's cross give us all peace in believing in him. Amen.